0: Welcome to Right to Refuge, a podcast brought to you by Solidarity, an international charity fighting for long term change in the refugee crisis.
1: Today, we're your hosts.
0: I'm Tiara. And I'm Rosie. And
1: today, we're talking about volunteering in refugee camps and how to make sure the work you do is impactful. So kicking off, um, Tiara, you've obviously done a lot of volunteering before. Do you want to just talk us through a little bit about what volunteering you've done and why you've chosen to volunteer in those organisations?
0: Yeah, I've got to say I don't want to get up on my soapbox at all during this podcast because (laughs) when I was a volunteer I don't think I was necessarily that much in the know and I was lucky in the sense that I'm a native Farsi speaker, so that meant that where there were Iranian and or Afghan asylum seekers, I was able to interact with them. And that's how I fell into interpretation and to working more into working myself into legal aid interpretation. But I've got to say that it wasn't the smoothest of journeys for sure. Um, and I wish that at the time I'd taken advantage of the resources that I guess are now available. Like the, there are quite a few free courses on interpreting for refugees and asylum seekers, for example, or just free courses on interpretation that with the COVID-19 era also have become more widespread and the payrolls have been taken down. So, yeah, I definitely do not want to get on my soapbox in, the, in this episode. What about you, Rosie? Have you... I know you've done some volunteering, but remind me of the details. Um, So I think,
1: yeah, I mean, I completely agree with what you're saying about the whole soup, sorry, soup box? <laughs> box thing Um, on the basis that like I've definitely done volunteering in the past that hasn't necessarily been in hindsight the most sustainable Um, for reasons such as when I took t- took a year after school i went i did the volunteering travel go volunteer in another country thing and i did the you pay money at the beginning and then you get given a placement and then you work there and I think that's something that I would definitely avoid doing now unless there was a really good reason that you were paying money to an organization to um like organize your volunteering for you because I think whenever there's a, someone else who has like a financial stake in the volunteering um process so linking you up with someone then that sort of rings alarm bells for me but it definitely didn't when I was 18 and I was first kind of trying to work out how I could make a difference so um yeah I think that we've all sort of maybe made mistakes when we're volunteering and it's maybe just important to think about how we can make sure they're sort of as sustainable as possible in the future. Um, But yeah, with the language thing, I I volunteered in Tanzania with a government run organization where the government essentially funds your entire trip and you work with international, you work with national counterparts in the area that you're volunteering. So a British person's paired with someone, well, I was paired with a Tanzanian um, and we sort of worked together. And I think that that was a really valuable thing because it meant that there was someone there. That knew the culture and knew the language and knew what was needed. And it wasn't quite so white savior flying in, um, trying to make loads of changes. It was very much like a process where we worked together. Um, so I think that that's one thing I definitely say is important um, when thinking about volunteering in other countries, for sure. So, in terms of what principles make good volunteering, Tiara, do you want to talk us through a bit what you think are kind of the most important things when looking at sustainable volunteering? Yeah, for
0: so sure. And I think. Touching upon what you've said about it being a participatory process, we want to always hit on accountability for the affected populations, right? So we don't just want to go in there as person A, go into X camp and person A gives out some aid, doesn't ask whether the affected population actually wants that aid, whether it's helpful, whether they've already been given it, and um, whether the modality is helpful, like do people want to be given blankets that are procured at a really low price so that the entire camp can be given a blanket each for $1? Or would they prefer to be given cash? Like, would they prefer to get, like, 50 USD to go and buy whatever it is they need from the local markets? like, what is it that people actually want? And I think with volunteering, that process is really hard to get a grip on because often volunteering is for short stints. And so making it a participatory process is actually really challenging in that respect so I think what you're looking for when you're volunteering is do is is the organization that I'm going to volunteer with are they aware of these principles even if I'm not involved in the project generation even if I'm just a spare pair of hands or I'm there to translate when people say they'd like a medium pair of socks or a large pair of socks am I with an organization that is seeing that process through
1: I I read something really interesting about kind of the gender dynamic of the participation participatory process um, and how actually a lot of the time people volunteer if we take refugee camps as an example people volunteer and they go to the camp and they engage in a lot of the work that actually could be done by people in the camp at the time so you have people who don't really know how to say build and they go to the camp and they build. And actually there are plenty of asylum seekers within that camp who may have a background in construction or engineering and they'd be much better suited to do that. Um, and not only is it going to be a lower quality if it's someone who doesn't really understand the process, but it's also going to take away from, um, work that people could be doing in the camp um, that may give them purpose may give them employment or may sort of generally just give them something to do and i think that the gender dynamic to that's really interesting because um, oxfam released a report i think it may have been two years ago that said uh, one of the ways that we can uh, improve conditions in camps is by giving people roles that they feel sort of help them fulfill a purpose that they're not able to fulfill so if we like think about a male um, wanting to be the breadwinner in this kind of stereotypical dynamic being able to provide some form of employment or some form of role or job within a camp might actually be hugely beneficial so in terms of kind of the participatory element actually working with people and sort of seeing what needs to be done and seeing who's best suited to do it and how it can actually be beneficial for the people in the situation to do it themselves rather than having people kind of fly in and doing it for them um so yeah i just wanted to add to that
0: no for sure and i think what can be really unsustainable about aid is when it when i guess an aid intervention results in a marked improvement in people's short-term conditions but it leads to a deterioration in their long-term conditions and if the effective popu- affected population are not allowed to get involved in the construction like be involved in shaping the environment they want to live in be involved in food distributions or even just offering their feedback and advice on the interventions because at the end of the day I don't really know a refugee camp half as well as the person who's living in it um that's creating long-term lack of resilience and if we think about what risk is risk is hazard divided by resilience right so I can't stop hazards as an aid worker I can't be like You know what, I'm going to do this intervention to stop climatic migration and to stop war. I cannot do that. I cannot remove hazards, but I can enhance resilience. So, for example, with legal aid, we are enhancing resilience by allowing people to have access to the rights that they should have, right? By getting them asylum status and ultimately residency and ultimately citizenship. So enhancing that resilience, we could never have stopped the hazard, like, for example, a war that or persecution that led them to migrate but we can enhance our resilience and with really short-term aid interventions we just end up long-term decreasing people's resilience right we like don't allow them to use their energy and their autonomy and their decision-making skills and long-term that is not only so detrimental for people's mental health but it means that they're no longer living in an environment that is suitable or fitting to them and that can be so damaging I think also with resilience, it's kind of
1: important to think about the resilience of the volunteers themselves as well. And um, it should never be the case that a volunteer is putting themselves in a situation where it's going to have a long-term emotional or mental health impact um, because ultimately, you know, the volunteer is not helpful to the situation if they're being um, really significantly affected. And I think knowing what your own emotional boundaries are when choosing where you're going to volunteer and how you're going to volunteer is really important. For example, you know, if you're the sort of person who can be very sort of significantly triggered by a traumatic event, then maybe working in an area like search and rescue, where you're going to be confronted with quite a lot of um, quite traumatic imagery a lot of the time, that might not be the best environment for you, because if you're going to freeze up in a moment where you're needed in this high pressurized environment, then you're not sort of providing very much help or assistance. Um, and I suppose, again, if you're the sort of person who really, really enjoys working with children, you'd be much better suited to an environment where you're um, teaching or working with the youth rather than adults. And I think just knowing what your strengths are and knowing also what your weaknesses are when it comes to choosing where you're going to volunteer. Um, that's maybe, that's something I'd say is, is super important because you're going to be the most helpful when you're in a situation that you're playing to your strengths you're not emotionally exhausting yourself and you're using the skill set that you have Um, so I'd say when choosing when to volunteer interrogate whether or not you're kind of adding value with your skill set and with your um, particular personality and then if you are then amazing go for it
0: for sure and to add on to that as a founder I think founder syndrome is real you often find people who see a pressing need, an urgent need for intervention, intervene, start something, be that a grassroots NGO, a community project, um, a campaign, a charity, a student collective, a volunteering group, whatever it is. And because they were driven to act in this urgent intervention, they know, I, I guess, I mean, from experience that they can make a difference, they can make impact, it becomes incredibly difficult to step away. But I always say to myself, the project may exist because of you, but you don't exist for the project. And not only is that about preserving your own mental health and your own space, but it's also about making sure the project survives. If you stifle something with so much energy and so much emotional involvement, it gets to the point where there's no critical distance between you and the work you're doing. And it makes it really difficult to relinquish a project when it's not doing good work or accept mistakes or feel not so emotionally attached that when your team members point out that you're not managing them well that you can take that and learn from the experience then if everything you do is for that project that is such an unhealthy relationship that you stifle it it can't grow
1: Yeah, and I suppose on the other side of the spectrum, because you were saying there about being so, so invested and needing to play this part, and sometimes you do need to take the step back and um, that sort of thing. But then on the other side of the spectrum, there's the idea that actually, are you volunteering for the right reasons? Are you choosing something that's maybe glamorous and something that you can take photos of and put on Facebook and show everyone that you're volunteering? Um, If that's one of the primary reasons, if you're going to come back from your volunteering experience abroad and have changed your profile picture to you and a vulnerable person, then, you know, that's something that's really, really, I think, a warning sign for me as well when it comes to volunteering, because um, on one side of the spectrum, too emotionally involved. On the other side of the spectrum, it being very performative and it being for you and not for or with the people that you're working with. Um, So, yeah, I think just interrogating why you're doing what you're doing and how you can do it well and be contributing um, actively is just something before you go anywhere to be thinking about.
0: No, I completely agree. And we often see this, I think, in volunteer testimonies, where volunteers often talk about how grateful the beneficiaries are. And I just find that really strange because you shouldn't be motivated by gratefulness, I think. That's a really like personal connection with the person that you're creating to feel the impact of their gratefulness and how amazing it was that you intervened. And I find that a really strange thing. I mean, obviously, I'm not saying that if someone says thank you, it really made a difference that you were able to facilitate with getting the X, Y and Z. I'm not like, completely stone, stone faced, you know, I cold blooded about that. No, obviously not. But that's not what well, I think should drive you because it's a bit demeaning for the refugee. I mean, if you think about the kind of conditions a lot of people are forced to live in, being grateful about a blanket. I mean, like, I get it that it really makes a big difference, especially in th- when people have nothing. You know, a blanket does make a big change. But at the same time, like feeding off people's gratefulness, it doesn't sit right with me, especially when the gap in circumstances is so just bad, just I can't even fathom. I think what should really drive you is the idea that you're making progress and you're doing good work. And even if every single beneficiary encountered that day really could not give a rat's bum that you spent 48 hours procuring the blankets and counting them and making sure everyone got the right blanket they needed for their family size, whatever, if every single person was ungrateful or just didn't show their gratefulness, it shouldn't really make a difference because it's about are you meeting people's needs? Are you meeting people's needs in the best way possible? It's not just enough to meet someone's needs. It's like, did they want it in that modality? Did Was the affected population consulted? Were they involved? If this is actually like a more elaborate process, like building shelters, were they involved in like the land planning and like the construction of the shelters themselves? And that is the stuff that should really drive you, like feeling that the project you did had a lot of integrity. And I think instead we've gone into this like gratefulness, continuum where it's like you do stuff because the refugees are grateful and that encourages you to do more and that's just going to lead you to a massive compassion fatigue and it's not sustainable for anyone involved.
1: And I think that that definitely comes into play when you're choosing the NGO or the organisation or the charity that you would like to volunteer with because, as you say, it's about looking at whether you're doing what the beneficiary wants in the way that the beneficiary wants and with integrity. And I think looking at how the NGO operates is a really good indicator of finding out that. So I don't know necessarily, Tiara, you might be able to add more on it sort of on a practical way, but theoretically, if you were say an NGO was working with um, victims of uh, sexual and gender-based violence um, and they were talking to the victim of the violence in kind of an open space or somewhere that there were lots of other people around, then that would... I think that would alarm me because that person might want to make a very confidential disclosure. They might need to be in a safe place apart from other people. They might need um, to make sure that that particular person didn't overhear them in the situation you're working with them in. And I think there are so many indications of that, um, both sort of when working directly with beneficiaries, and also when talking about them. So if you have an NGO that's using particular terms or narratives that are perpetuating sort of harmful things, for example, referring to the beneficiaries, maybe using lots of personal information about them when talking to volunteers, which might be breaking some kind of um, confidentiality agreement, or just referring to them in a kind of through sort of vulnerability narratives like making them seem like weak or vulnerable people or victims um any of those sort of either any ways in which the NGO is interacting with beneficiaries or discussing beneficiaries or any narratives that they're perpetuating that seem slightly off would definitely be uh, a warning sign for an NGO that I wouldn't personally want to work with um so yeah I think it's when choosing the right NGO interrogating their practice practices and seeing whether they're doing everything with integrity and if there's something they're doing that you don't quite understand why they're doing it then maybe that's something to sort of investigate before choosing to work with them
0: no for sure I often say that the interview process with the NGO is not just an interview for them to accept you but for for you to accept them like it's a time for you to ask them especially given that you're offering your time and services for free it's a time for you to ask them what safeguarding procedures do you have for beneficiaries what confidentiality procedures do you have um and asking them also what kind of training you'll receive like is there anything you should be preparing and if they're very vague on these things and I think that's a massive warning sign I mean if you think about the safeguarding procedures we have let's say in our most vulnerable moments like I as a British citizen if I needed to go to the hospital because i had some sort of medical issue the doctors like taken the hippocratic oath they've signed a confidentiality agreement the health and safety procedures like every single person i will come into contact with in that hospital who is a staff or personnel member has taken a bunch of training professional, and professional and those are professional duties i guess whereas a lot of refugees and asylum seekers like the person they're encountering who's giving them x form of aid maybe has done none of that, like not even a modicum, not even one percent. And it's pretty concerning. And I think it also speaks to our subconscious preconceptions about what we think um asylum seekers host countries are like, where we're like, oh, anything is anything is helpful. Like it's better than nothing. And that kind of attitude can actually be really damaging. Especially if you think, for example, in legal aid, what the effect of bad advice or incorrect advice could be. I mean, that is costing someone their shorter asylum and Potentially leading to their deportation, which is really a matter of life and death. So I think really interrogating also our preconceptions about what it is we assume and think about the host countries that these asylum seekers are coming from um, would be a helpful exercise for all of us, I think.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean also on a more kind of um, mental well-being level like obviously if you were volunteering and gave someone incorrect information legal aid wise you know as you say that would be whatever the word that could ruin their case Um, and but I think also you have quite a lot of people who think that if they go and spend two or three weeks working or volunteering at an orphanage with really really young children and there's this kind of idea that actually all they need is love and i'm just there to give them some love and that you know that will help even if it will only help for those three weeks but actually um as you say that that short-term impact of that kind of volunteering may very well have a really really negative long-term impact um because If we take the example of an orphanage, these children are seeing so many people coming in and out of their lives on a constant basis, and the sort of mental health implications that that has long term for sort of abandonment and making attachments and then losing that attachment. I think that, as you say, the long term negative impact far outweighs the short term positive one, and that's something that can definitely be seen across lots of different volunteering cases. So, I guess another thing to think about is what is the long-term impact of what you're doing is it do you are you going to have one or is your impact completely isolated to the two weeks that you're volunteering there and if it's the latter then maybe it's worth thinking about you know why are you going there for that short period of time what can you actually contribute meaningfully in that period
0: no for sure and I think what this really links into is this idea that the refugee crisis exists far away from us in the UK but It's happening in Greece. It's happening in the Middle East. It's happening on America's southern border. But actually, I mean, I say this all the time: the crisis is a crisis of compassion and a crisis of mismanagement. And I think a lot of volunteering should be done at home. Like you don't need to go and be on the quote-unquote front line, which in of itself is weird language because it's reminiscent of war and like conflict and stuff. Like we don't need volunteering. Is not necessarily about putting yourself in an emergency situation and being able to speak to the kind of drama that you've experienced and witnessed. I think a lot of volunteering can be done at home and changing our perceptions, because if at the end of the day, the British public had much more awareness about the refugee crisis, felt more sympathetic towards refugees and asylum seekers, we wouldn't have just, I mean, we failed to meet our target of 20,000 Syrians relocated in the UK amongst like, across multiple years. We failed to meet that tiny target. The Dubs Amendment was repealed. Not only would we have perhaps (laughs) rethought some of those poor decisions, but also we would have most likely smashed those targets. We would have relocated more Syrians, more refugees from different war-torn countries that aren't just Syria. We would have thought more about unaccompanied minors. We would have handled handled Cali better. And so I think a lot of volunteering needs to to happen in the UK and changing people's perceptions, because I guess that's in a way the most long-term thing we can do. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Oh, you to get into a rant.
1: Save me from it. <laughs> um, no, I mean, please rant. I love listening to your rants. <laughs> My, I was actually only going to interject with a um, shameless plug because you said please volunteer at home and um, the, the sort of long-term sustainable impact of that. And I thought that that was a perfect time to say um, that Solidarity is always recruiting for reps at different universities or people to volunteer in different capacities, and that's something that we really try and do and value is. Um, sustainable volunteering, volunteering that's um people enjoy, that is kind of empowering for the individual, but also for providing the sort of aid that is empowering for the asylum seeker and refugee. So I just I just saw that as an opportunity, Tiara, to just add that in there.
0: (laughs) Always love a plug for solidarity. But I think that is what I mean, again, I'm a bit um partial, (laughs) but I think that's what we do at Solidarity so well because if this generation of students at university grow up to be more conscious about the refugee crisis more refugee friendly, I think that will make a world of good and will reap those rewards in like twenty years when this generation of politicians and community workers and social workers and activists and journalists and policy policymakers and not even them not even just them like the people who go into the corporate world and do strange things like i don't know for some reason think it's a good idea whilst they're working as a consultant to advise ice on how to make their asylum facilities more efficient and basically in creating inhumane conditions for asylum seekers like those people also like we're just raising um consciousness and awareness in all of those circles that the refugee crisis is not something to be feared in fact what is to be feared is our own (laughs) crisis of compassionate mismanagement And if that permeates every level of society and every job that people eventually go on to do, or even just in the small acts of kindness that we exhibit as humans, then that is a big game. Mic drop!
1: so much for listening to Write to refuge uh, for each episode we've collated further reading resources where which you can find by visiting our website there you can find everything podcast related and also how to get involved in solidarity if you want to make change please do subscribe and if you're listening on apple podcast leave a review as it helps other people find us